Something in the Static with Sean D. Wilson. Hello and welcome to episode two. Stay tuned to hear truths and untruths about the creative process, including what to do when you hit that wall. (laughs) (laughs) The art of the critique. Seems like kind of word vomit. Yeah, with no kind of structure once you get to the end of the review, like, well, that kind of made no sense. Immortal man Tiberius Melchard returns. And then he comes out with the algebra thing. Well, hello, who invented the alphabet? I, I don't know. Well, oh, that's right. Oh, me. Musician Dan Untitled talks collage culture. People have seen me perform or heard something that I've done and go, oh, didn't you just take that and plonk that on top of that and that's all there is to it? And it's like, actually, no. First, though, let's cross to our reporter in the field. Me! Do we need to have limits on our imagination in order to stop it from gushing out into a big old heap of nothing much? Perhaps structures and limits are what makes creating things worthwhile. So many questions, but how to find the answer? Crap, that's another question. Luckily, I'm a top-notch investigative journalist. It's true, I've been covering this beat since before your grandmama was in nappies. And I do not mean the second time round. I journeyed up the faraway tree, avoiding Dame Washlot and the angry pixie, in order to head through La La Land, which crossed over to the land of creativity. The land of creativity is an incredibly wide open space, but in the distance I could just see someone. Someone with rather pink wings. Uh, yeah, um, hi, excuse, excuse me. Hi, um, I'm, I'm trying to see what lies in creativity's limits. Uh, can you help me? Why, certainly, fair master. I have many a time come across the end of creative thought. <laughs> well then. When you come across a wall of wonder, that shall be as far as you go. Sorry to disappoint you, you fluff of a fairy, but I won't be held back by any wall. If this is one of those trap you for the rest of time places that I've read so much about, then I'll head right back to the entrance. (laughs) What? Where did this bastard wall come from? Wait. You did this. Excuse me? I know your type. Gets a wand, power goes to the head. I will wring your little neck. You need to sort this right now. Tear down this wall! I'm afraid you'll have to figure out how to go through the boundary in order to achieve anything. I tried smashing, climbing. Nothing worked. Except, of course, my plan to run into the wall and lose some teeth. That was very successful. (laughs) I walked along the path by the wall until 
I spied an old man. Who are you calling old? Uh, sorry, did, did I say that out loud? You didn't need to, boy. The forest of imagination is my realm. The forest of imagination? Of course it is. I, I am Bartholomew, ruler of this and that. I see you were searching for some wisdom, lad. I, I, I guess. All right then. Well, sit down. Not on the rainbow turtle. He's just been deloused. No, not on the concept of being late to an event that was cancelled. It's far too abstract to rest those solid little buttocks of yours upon. Now listen up. And if you mind your P's and Q's, you just might learn something. I don't want none of that lip you gave Cecily. Cecily? Pink lass, hovers a bit. Glitter for eyebrows. Made from sugar and spice and all that. She might put up with you, but I'll elbow your ghoulies soon as look at you. Martholomew told me about what he had learned of creativity from living in the realm of imagination. To be honest, I didn't take a lot of it in. Pay attention then, you wispy wasp of a boy. Listen but to the supposed benefits of creative limitations seemed to pertain to my situation. I realised that what I was dealing with was an extremely crass metaphor. The wall represented how placing limits on creative thought can force you into coming out with less obvious, more interesting ideas. I need to use the wall, not fight against it. There you go, boy. On the wall? Was that door always there? is there in showing off about what a creative force you are if nobody actually comes in contact with your era-defining kitten kettle covers. They're so cute. People must see those ickle-wickle whiskers. One of the ways to get a wider audience for a creative work is to send it off to be reviewed. There's reviews for cars, film, dance, books, theatre, video games, restaurants, television, visual arts, architecture, even hamburgers. But is there an art to the critique? Well, maybe. I, I doubt you would get as much satisfaction from making a smartphone as stamping it into the ground, piece by piece, crying out to the heavens above, it's gone too far. No one needs an app that makes monobrows. Adam Burns has reviewed for Rip It Up, Groove Guide, NZ Musician, Magneto Magazine, and MusicHype.com. I asked him, what makes a critic stand out as a creative force? Writing with flair. Not writing like a, a, a typical journalist trying to maybe fashion a new way of thinking about something. So the creativity is in allowing the audience to see something in a way they hadn't quite positioned it before, a way of seeing 
wait, I hadn't thought about it in this way, and it's using words to make that happen. Yeah, I think it's been creative. One of the limits placed on print journalists is that there's only so much space for their review. I find with a smaller word count, with a groove guide and New Zealand musician, um, album reviews, 150 to 200 words, sometimes you just want to write forever. You want to write on and on and on and on, but unfortunately you have to kind of condense it. Yeah, it's, it's tricky, but I suppose there's a an art to it. Let's say that you put a review on the internet. You won't have that same word limit. Is the limit part of making sure all your ideas work and creatively putting them together? Um, it's hard to say. Say um, a website like Pitchfork, their reviews generally go on for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. And from my, my personal perspective, are generally uh, a bit too overthought. Yeah. And I just look at them and think, well, if you'd been forced to put that to print rather than online, you might have had a good review out of this. You might have had something that was entertaining to read and that I enjoyed and got some information out of. In that case, they've obviously not um, proofread their work because if it makes no sense, I mean, they could be completely oblivious to it, which is not a good sign. Not all the time, but just a couple of times, it just seems like kind of pitchfork in particular, word vomit, yeah, with no no structure to it. And then you kind of, once you get to the end of the review, you're like, well, that kind of made no sense. I just want to read your mind. Critics tend to have a broad palette, but they can still be asked to tackle works that are far removed from their own personal taste. Let's say I was given some metal or classical. That, that's outside my realms of experience for the most part. I don't feel like I can legitimately judge that. Would you take on anything given to you and write about it creatively, even if it wasn't something you were entirely familiar with? Well, you'd like to think so. I mean, yeah, there's going to be some extra research that will need to be done, but that can only kind of benefit you in the long run. You don't necessarily have to talk about typical classical music you know, jargon, I guess. You can kind of talk about the what, what it does to you, the kind of moods and the feelings evoked. Any piece of music is going to do something to you. But what if you actually didn't like it? I mean, wouldn't that be a bit more difficult? Because then you'd be like, okay, I don't like it, but how do I write about it without just sounding like I'm an ignoramus about this? How do I, how do I put a little of creativity in it? Because let's say I listen to a, a black metal record and I think, okay, I, it's outside of my limits, but also I think it's absolutely terrible. No one should ever listen to it. Not that I don't think I've ever listened to a full black metal record, so it, I might love it em, if em, it happens. Emperor, you should check out the band. I should check. Emperor. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, it is it is tough, and I suppose that's why um, certain journalists kind of stick to. Not necessarily one genre, but like a... A sphere. Yeah. You never see them reviewing like Detroit techno, uh, a rap, a hip-hop record. I see a lot of reviewers just openly admitting I'm a newcomer to this particular artist, and that's possibly why it makes me feel that way. I mean, people are going to take that into consideration. Have you ever given back an album and said, I can't write about this? No. No, I've never done that. Adam Burns there. He's actually... A reviewing machine. It's ridiculous. Always makes deadline. He's actually he's even doing a review right now in the corner. He's always done. <laughs> and it's 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 of this show. We we are only ten minutes in of this episode. Mate, mate, could you could you wait till it's over? No. 
Fine. Let's hear it. I, you know, I, 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 I can take criticism. My attention was wandering until I heard upon the radio a voice. But what a voice. A man's voice. It was the melodious tones of reviewer about town, Adam Burns. When he came on, I felt like I was covered in velvet reviews of So So Modern's debut. Four stars. Yeah, thanks Adam. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic, fantastic critical doubts. Great. Cheers. Let's move on to something else, yeah? You're listening to Something in the Static. I'm Sean D. Wilson. Time to catch up with possessor of immortality, Tiberius Melchart. So, Tiberius, you're promoting your 28th volume of autobiography, mm-hmm. um, and it's called Melchard, Artistic Genius Man. Was it artistic... Uh, what was it? How do you say it? Artistic Genius Man? Artistic or? Genius Man. Is that... The emphasis must be on the genius in between, because everyone knows that I'm a man, so it's artistic genius man. Mm. So in the book, you claim to have written and produced some of the greatest artistic works ever. Could you run me through some of those? Yeah, well, I guess the first work that um, wasn't attributed to me, but was created by me, was Complete Weeks of Homer. Homer was a good friend of mine. He was on hard times, and so I did a mate a favour. I have to say, I, I really like The Odyssey. It's a great piece of work. It is a great piece of work. I'm not going to be modest about it. The Odyssey is great. There's the issue that everyone in it is almost universally a horrible person. Therein lies the secret. People like reading about horrible people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You're right, actually. I had a great time reading your autobiographies. Oh, thanks, Sean. And then uh, skip forward. A few centuries, and I've been writing. The I wrote Beowulf. Um, I wrote all the early Chaucer, and uh, Enid Blyton's work. I, I was I, dist- I was very surprised yes, about that. I wrote all of Enid Blyton again, all about horrible people. That they're, they're they're terrible. Yeah, that's the secret. Write uh, about horrible people. I I hate Anne and the Famous Five the most. She is the most horrible. I'm pretty sure she's poisoning people in the background. We tried to get that across. There was oh. there was layers of poisoning that we tried to get across in there. I'm glad you picked that Timmy, up. Timmy, for a start, she definitely got to him a few times. Yeah, the, he was the only nice person in really all of them, except for Moonface and the Faraway Tree. Well, yeah, and Timmy wasn't actually a person. Well, I'm, well, he was a character. He certainly was a character, but there's a difference between a character and a, and a person. Well, it was Moonface a character or a person? Moonface was Moonface. He was in a different category. What category was that? Moonface. If you could name one famous writer in the past, if I haven't written what they wrote, I'll at least have a very good chat about their work with them. Well, there, were, there was someone in the book that I was, to me, noticeably missing, and that was uh, William Shakespeare. Did you have any hand in that? No, oh, no, for God's sake. No, he wrote that. I wouldn't write any of that popular shit. Okay. A lot of people like, a lot of people like it. Yeah, of course they do. He's like the Elizabethan Dan Brown. Hmm. Isn't he? You know that Dan Brown looks a lot like Shakespeare. I, do, I did not know that. The portraits of, of Shakespeare are not accurate. Well, no. They're completely accurate. The photos of Dan Brown aren't accurate. That guy walks around with floppy brown hair and a ruffle. Hmm. Who's the person that annoyed you the most? So blatant was their rip-off of you? <sighs> Probably Bark. In a way, it's not his fault. I whistled too much. When we were hanging out, I couldn't stop myself. I was just whistling away. 
Prince as well used to be notorious for it. Well, didn't you think for a little while that Prince was immortal like you? Because you first encountered him in 1723. Prince is, I'll give him that, the only other person who can claim some form of immortality. Mm. Whether he's as immortal as me is yet to be believed. But Prince is 400 years old. When I first met Prince, he was working in retail. He was selling um, pads and pencils, stationery. So was it funky stationery? It was quite funky. It, it was no strawberry beret, but it was... So, so it was originally Strawberry Beret, and he took it to Raspberry, is that right? No, there's just two songs. Oh, okay, I haven't heard Strawberry Beret. Well, that's because he released that in 1763. And not many people had record players at that stage. No, in fact, it was a cappella, and it was just sung um, at choral on street corners. Big hit, though. You used to only gauge how big a song was in those times by how many people were singing it on the street corners. And was that many people? 17. You must have heard... Strawberry Beret quite a few times now. Can you give me a little taste of it? The song goes like this. Strawberry Beret The kind you buy from a second hand store. So very much, very much like like Raspberry Beret. But Raspberry Beret has um, some music behind it. Yes, but this was just a cappella. So when people were singing Strawberry Beret Straw, straw, strawberry beret mm. The kind can you buy at the second hand store? And then people would layer that up and sort of call and receive kind of thing. So people would be like, the kind you buy, the kind you buy. And yeah, it, it, was, quite, it was quite good. You briefly teamed up with Prince to form a duo called the Acapella Roadies. And then we eventually went with the artists formerly known as the Acapella Rodeophobios, Duckadoo Dada. He was much better as a solo artist. I was the Garfunkel to his Paul Simon. And we'd just like to reassure listeners that um, Art Garfunkel is in fact nobody's Art Garfunkel. Things are always coming to me. I'm an ideas man. And occasionally some people are in the right place at the right time to take those ideas. <sighs> Bloody Archimedes, Galileo, Newton. Well, Newton attracts particular ire. Well, he does because... That guy has been credited to, to the nines, whatever that means. Yeah. You claim to have seen apples falling beforehand and that you had, in fact, fallen down the st- some stairs at one point. I did. I co-invented it. I've never really been given credit for that. And then Newton comes along and he gets all this credit for explaining something that I invented. So... I'm not a massive fan. Well, you, you call him a lot of names. Um, a yeah. Terawiga nitpicker was one of them. Yeah. A Portuguese mine herder. Yeah. Waratunga jingadugger. I don't know what that is. Waratunga jingadugger. Well, he'll know what that means. Well, he's, he's dead. dead. No, but if he, if he was alive, he'd know. He's not. Yeah, well, the laugh's on him, isn't it? Well, yeah, but you can say that about anyone. Well, I can. Yeah. I can say that about... That's the thing I can say about everyone. I can call anyone I want a, a little hairy cookabilly. Well, I don't think that's appropriate. No, well... I think it's appropriate to say whatever I want. No one's going to... What are you going to do? Kill me? Well, no. I mean... What know, are you saying, even, sure? even if you weren't immortal, I wouldn't kill you for that. Well, no, but you're getting a bit angry. Well, I'm, I'm just I'm saying... away from the window. It's, it's a lot of vitriol. I mean, did you explain to him that you had invented it? The guy went and published his thing before I even got a chance to talk to him. Okay, can, can I just name some things and you could tell me... Sure. ...whether you did it or not? Mm-hmm. Um, bark. Yes. Like both sorts, a dog barking and on a tree? Tree first, dog second. Dog in response to it. Ford Cortinas? No. 
No, four Cortinas. I'm not taking the credit for that. They're disgusting. The concept of imagination. Yes. Did that take you long? No, I just thought it up. Using? Using an earlier version of imagination. Oh, so you, did, you didn't invent imagination, but you imagined imagination 2.0. Before imagination, there was an earlier thing, which was just called mutt. Mutt was, it was very, very basic. Slow response, not many graphics. So it, it, it was the Atari to the Xbox 360. Very good. Both of those I invented as well. Maybe it's quicker to do a list of things that you haven't invented. Sure. Could you take me through some of those? Yes. I didn't invent shoes. I didn't invent the moon. I didn't invent Sean Connery. Who invented Sean Connery? It was a co-production between some Scottish bandits and the women of the first world. I didn't invent Ebola. Didn't invent summer. I was quite happy with just the other three. And I didn't invent... Um... Is that it? That's, I think, I can't That's remember. most of it, isn't it? Yeah, I didn't invent... I didn't invent... Um, Venus. Venus. Well, That's poorly constructed. Very poorly designed. And the proof will be in the pudding there. It'll go down. You're going down, Venus. Meet me after the show, and I'm going to tell you exactly what I think of your canals, and you are not going to like it. I was speaking to the literally immortal Tiberius Melchard about his autobiography, Melchard, Artistic Genius Man, which is available in all good um, fictional bookshops. He, it's, 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 not, it's not real. It's fake. Next time, Tiberius chats about his search for the fountain of eternal death and his son, Ralph, hunts down the Library of Alexandria. There's something in the static. We've already heard about the creativity involved in critiquing art, but what if your art is a reimagining of other people's creations? I arranged to meet at the home studio of Dan James, who's also known as Dan Untitled. Hey, how's it going? He's worked on remix and mashup based projects for years, both in music and video. I like your voice, but you have to go for the moment. Once settled in, I began by asking Dan what he thought of people who claim that remixing by nature is unoriginal. There's other people that say that everything's a remix. That, for example, that 90% of Led Zeppelin's riffs were stolen from other bands, um, and all they did is kind of rearrange them a little bit and turn them into something else. But they did that rearrangement on a guitar, on a more traditional instrument rather than some software. There's a tradition of this that goes way before the technology existed to do it digitally. What attracts you to this method of creation? There's a whole lot of material in contemporary society that we're confronted with just that's kind of part of what we encounter day to day. Bits of music and bits of pop culture and things like that. And that those sorts of things have a cultural resonance that you can play on by recontextualizing them and shoving them into places where and shoving them into combinations where you wouldn't normally encounter them makes you think about those same cultural texts differently you've worked to some degree with visuals mm-hmm. compared to say putting together a film or a music video or whatever what's the process like how much does it differ um 
I've only done one music video, and with the approach there, I kind of gave it a fairly mashup-y approach anyway in terms of just um, not having a linear narrative but lots and lots of slices of information that are kind of quick cut together. So in some ways, mashups and remixing have their own sort of editing style compared to other mediums? Not necessarily. I think a lot of music videos are quick cut anyway. The difference, I guess, is how you think of narrative. If you think of narrative as being conveyed by a handful of characters and telling a story, or you think of narrative as a structure that doesn't necessarily convey one particular story, but it might have lots of multiple and conflicting meanings. When I saw you the other night, as well as having all your gear, you were playing uh, bass guitar, wasn't it? Yep, that's right. Was that important to have, uh, at some stage, a more analogue instrument? The thing that I was wanting to play up is the compositional element of mashups. Of like, okay, okay, when you're when you're when you're making a mashup, you figure out what key is this particular song and what chord structure does it follow. Then you take another thing and layer it over the top, and that's got it. It might be in a different key or a relative key. Once you've got those two things one on top of the other, the number of correct notes that you can play relative to both chord structures reduces. So it becomes it's a bit of a challenge to go, okay, what can you do? And for me, the analog instrument, the bass guitar in that case, is a way of going, okay, what's the middle ground between these two things? And can I emphasize this or highlight it? Or can I use another choice of notes to downplay certain elements and play up other elements. It's difficult to tell what exactly someone's doing if they've got a laptop or um, a sequencer on stage. It's difficult to figure out what they're actually putting out there, but with a bass guitar you can kind of figure it out more obviously, and people kind of like that, don't they? Yeah, there is that. People definitely respond to it on that level. But then you could say the same thing about a turntable. You can physically see somebody's hand moving around on vinyl and hands jumping around on a mixer in a normal DJ setup. The only bit that you can't see is what's going on on the laptop. It's unlikely that what's going on behind the screen is me hitting play and checking my emails. In terms of technical developments, I don't tend to go for the newest technology. Like my sampler that you're, that's sitting there is about I don't know, 15 years old now, and I still use it. And why is that? I personally think that it matters more how you play it or what you do with it than having the latest or the fanciest toy. It's a matter of taking what you do have and pushing it into different territories. With making mashups and remixes, do you think you actually have to be a musician, or is that just another way of being a musician? There's two different ways of answering that. One is, yes, that is just another way of being a musician. Um, the other way of answering that is that to 
successfully make a mashup, you need to know about rhythms and chord structures. So there's actually quite a lot of musicality involved. People take it for granted. Like you, people I've can think of a few times where somebody had seen me perform or heard something that I'd done and go, oh, didn't you just take that and plonk that on top of that and that's all there is to it? And it's like, actually, no. Quite often you'll go through and go, this almost matches apart from this one particular note. Can I get away with shifting the pitch of this one particular note so that they do match? It's almost working backwards from normal production because you're going, okay, here's these two finished things. What can I pull back out of them to make them work together? Or what can I shift around so that they still retain their essential character? Um, But do you want them to retain that essential character if you're trying to make your own new thing? If my own new thing is a unexpected conflation of those two familiar pop cultural texts, then yes. Dan James, a.k.a. Dan Untitled, talking about crafting creative work using pre-existing art. In episode two of Something in the Static, you heard the voices of Dan Musgrove, Sonia Sly, Adam Burns, and Dan James. Music was provided by Glass Vaults, The Knife, Forest Spirits, The Books, Dan Untitled, and myself. The first segment of the show was called All You Need Is A Wall and was originally made for a Third Coast Audio Festival competition. Something the Static is produced by Sean D. Wilson.